Our reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to come before God's word, let's pray together so that we can ask for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do plead for your help, um, that you would help us to understand, that you would give to us your spirit, that your word might be applied to us. Father, you know how we have walked through these doors, each of us individually this morning, um, some discouraged and some lonely uh, some excited to be here with your people and some surprised to, to find themselves in a church this morning, some with questions and others assured. And yet, Father, no matter how we come through those doors this morning, we pray that you would help us to see and understand this morning from your word that we really are all the same. Because the truth is that we are all far more broken, far more twisted and warped and sinful than we could ever really imagine. And so we all together need the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christmas story of a Savior who came in order that we could be at the same time both far more broken than we could ever imagine and also assured that we are far more loved and far more secure, far more accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. So, Father, we pray that you would lift us, that you would lift our eyes to see our Savior who gave his life for us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And please be seated. Children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church at this time. So if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, We've been spending our Sunday mornings this Christmas season reflecting on Isaiah 53 together. And um, Isaiah 53 is about this promised servant that God was going to send to deliver His people, and of course, that's Jesus. And as we've talked through Isaiah 53, um, we've talked about how this this passage is like a song with several distinct stanzas, and each of these stanzas highlights a particular theme of this servant's life and death. And so, so far, we've looked at Christmas 
and the puzzling servant. We've talked about Christmas and the upside-down servant. We've talked about Christmas and the sacrificial servant. And this morning, as we reflect on the verses read for us a moment ago, Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, we're going to talk this morning about Christmas and the voluntary servant. Um, That this servant came and voluntarily exchanged his life for ours communicates how deep and how complete God's love for us really is. And I want you to realize this morning that when you understand that, when that truth becomes real to you, it has the power to dramatically change you, uh, to set you free and transform you from the inside out. Um, I heard this story years ago about a young man and woman who were in college uh, when they first met and started getting to know each other. And immediately this young man noticed something very strange, very different about this young woman, and it was this. He never saw her not wearing gloves. Um, She always had gloves covering her hands, whether it was hot outside or cold outside, whether she was inside or outside, she always had gloves on her hands. And so he asked one of her friends early on, what's the deal with the gloves? And this friend of hers told him that she had this rare form of cancer on her hands. And um, the cancer was now in complete remission, but it had left its mark on her hands. Uh, Not only the cancer, but the surgeries uh, that were performed on her hands to rid her of those cancerous cells. Uh, They left her hands horribly scarred and gnarled, and she was very insecure. She was ashamed of the way her hands looked, and so she covered them in these gloves. Um, Time went by, and this young man started to realize that he had fallen in love with this, this young woman, and they dated and, and all of that, and never once did he bring up the gloves or try to talk to her about her hands, and he decided that it was time, the moment was right, he needed to declare his love for this young woman. And so one evening after a date, they were walking around this lake on campus, and they sat down on a bench overlooking the lake, and he decided this is perfect. This was the moment. And so this is what he did. He took her by the hands and held her hands, and then very gently, without a word, he slid off one of the gloves on one of her hands and revealed her scarred and twisted and gnarled hand. And with his lips, he gently kissed that hand and said, I love you. It's a good story, right? Um, let me, this is the question I want to ask you. What if someone came to kiss your brokenness? What if someone revealed your deepest, your darkest shame, and didn't want to run away from you, but moved towards you with a healing kiss. You know, we are, we're so afraid. Um, we really are. We're afraid. Um, it's why we hide our true selves. It's why we put up walls with others. It's why we 
pretend that we're something we're not. Um, we're, we so desperately, all of us in this room, we so desperately want to be seen and loved. And yet, we cannot bear the terrifying thought that if someone really saw our true, warped, and twisted, self-centered hearts, they would immediately run away from us in horror and shock. You know, the promise of Christmas and the promise of Isaiah 53 is that God Himself, Jesus, moved towards us and didn't run away from us. He came to reveal our scarred, twisted, and shame-riddled hearts to give us the kiss of His mercy and grace that would heal our lives. And when that sinks in, and when that becomes real to you, right, not just an intellectual concept, but becomes real to your heart, that this is what He has done for you, then there's nothing left to fear in life. And you're set free. And to know that you are completely and perfectly and unconditionally loved like this, it will transform you from the inside out. And so I want you to listen for that this morning. I want you to listen for the declaration of God's love for you in the sending of His Son who was this voluntary servant who gave His life for you. So to do that, I've got three points I want us to work through in this passage. First, I want us to talk about the servant's righteous life. And then second, I want us to talk about the servant's voluntary death. And then finally, I want us to apply all of this and talk about the benefits of this servant's life and death. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the servant's righteous life. His life of perfect righteousness, his life of ultimate beauty. Here's what I want to do. I want to try something unique. I want to to try to work at this from a unique kind of angle. Um, I I love reading this author uh, named uh, Joseph Epstein. His use of language is just absolutely captivating to me. And a, a lot of people consider him to be the greatest essayist at writing in the English language. And I remember this time he commented about his own writing. Um, and this is what he said. He said, as for my opinion of my quality as an essayist, it is simple enough and comes down to the feeling that I could have done a lot better. Paul Valery, who said so many smart things about writing, claimed that he never finished a poem. He merely abandoned it, by which he meant that even after long labor, he could not discover ways to make the poem as good as he hoped it might be. And see, what he's doing in that statement is he is admitting this frustrated ability of his, or frustrated inability to be and to capture what he envisions. His work feels unfinished. At the end, it feels just abandoned, right? And I think a lot of us feel like this about life, that even when we have given it our very best, we still feel to have fallen so short of ultimate beauty, of perfect righteousness, 
Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he put this same idea in a short story called Leaf by Niggle, if you've written that. And see, Niggle was this painter, and he spent his whole life trying to paint this one beautiful tree, this huge mural of this tree, and eventually he died and he left his work unfinished. He abandoned his work, right? Well, in Tolkien's story, upon Niggle's death, and it's fantasy, right? He's taken on a train ride on his way to heaven. And at one point, this train stopped, and Niggle got off the train to ride his bicycle through this beautiful countryside that was there. And this is what Tolkien wrote. Niggle was riding over the turf, and it was green and close. And yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun, and Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that about a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed, and it so often failed to catch. Right? Tolkien was a Christian. Epstein isn't a Christian. See, if you're honest, no matter who you are right now, this is what life often feels like. And honestly, the older we get in life, the more we feel it. And we once had dreams that one day we could attain ultimate beauty. We thought, given enough time, I could, uh, eventually I'll be able to justify my existence, right? But none of us completes it. None of us finishes it. This life of righteousness and beauty, at the end of the day, we simply abandon the work. (laughs) You know, that's a very depressing way, I guess, to start the sermon. But listen, Isaiah is saying, someone came and lived that life. Someone came and lived the life we could not live, even on our very best day. He was, and he was thrown into this crucible. He was squeezed in this vice of oppression and affliction that we read about in those verses. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken. He was violently mistreated, verse 9. But he did no violence himself. He was slandered and he was judged, verse 9. But there was no deceit in his mouth. And by the time you get to verse 11 of Isaiah 53, Isaiah just comes right out and he gives this servant this title. He calls him the righteous one. Right? He came and lived the righteous life, the life of beauty that we feel we should have lived, but we cannot live. You know, people will often read through the Gospels, and given this portrait of Jesus' life that's there, how he stood up to the oppressors, um, how he was perfectly compassionate to the broken how he lived so selflessly, how he never compromised truth or love, how when betrayed by his friends, he never spoke defensively. He was silent before his accusers, how he became the object 
of men's violence, and with nails in his hands and his feet, and pierced thorns into his brow, he prayed for their forgiveness. And you know, people will often read through that, and they'll say, there's no way. That's unrealistic. And I want to say that that's a (laughs) cop-out, because the real trouble with his life as you read it, what makes it so troubling is not that it's unrealistic, but that it's too realistic. That is the life of beauty. That is the perfect life of righteousness, full of love, truth, compassion, perfect integrity and justice and radical forgiveness. That's how life should be lived. That's how you were meant to live life. You know, as a pastor, I start paying attention when I know that people are going through very difficult times in life, um, when they are under a lot of stress, whether that be relational or financial or physical or whatever, because it's under pressure, right? It's under stress like that that our hearts reveal their true natures, right? We snap, we react, we bend and we break when we're squeezed in those kind of vices, right? And what comes out is our twisted, our angry, our warped, our self-centered hearts. They reveal themselves. Can you imagine more stress than being completely alone, abandoned, betrayed, unjustly sentenced to death, and crucified? What would come out of you Were you squeezed in that vice? See, Jesus' true nature came out in that crucible, right? And it was so significant that every gospel writer paid attention to it and saw the fulfillment of these verses. He remained silent before Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate. He made no answer. He said nothing. Matthew 26, Matthew 27, Mark 14, Mark 15, Luke 23. It's it's everywhere. His true heart was revealed, and what was found was a perfect, a heart in perfect submission to his Father's will, a life of perfect righteousness to the very end, fulfilling every jot and tittle, everything in Isaiah 53, the life of ultimate beauty, he came and he lived the life you could not live. Okay, second, let's talk about his death, the servant's voluntary death, because this really is the theme of these verses, that though he was perfectly righteous, he voluntarily submitted to this terrible death that's described for us in Isaiah 53. You know, this metaphor of a sheep or a lamb in verse 9, it's interesting because these verses are telling you how Jesus is both like and unlike a sheep or a lamb, right? See, like a sheep before a shearers or a lamb to the slaughter, these verses are telling you he went calmly, he went quietly. But sheep go calmly and quietly because they are completely unaware of what's going on. He was not unaware. He voluntarily went to the cross to be a sacrifice. He was stricken for the transgressions of his people. He became voluntarily an object of oppression and violence and injustice and judgment for his people. Now now think about this. This servant Jesus... His death was the only truly voluntary death 
that the world has ever witnessed. You know, we rightly celebrate our heroes, um, men and women who lay down their lives for our country. We celebrate it. We give them a day. It's called Memorial Day. We celebrate it, right? We celebrate stories of firefighters and policemen and other heroes, everyday citizens who lay down their lives in order to rescue others. And we absolutely should celebrate that completely. We should celebrate far more than we do. But come back to my point here. Jesus' death was the only truly voluntary death the world has ever seen. How, how is that so when we know of other heroes who have died? Because listen, no matter who we are, we all have to die someday. Sometimes men and women, they heroically choose the circumstances of their death to serve others. But whether we choose those circumstances or not, all of us will have to die. And here's the story of the Bible. There is only one man, one ultimate hero who has ever lived who did not have to die, and that is Jesus, this servant. His perfectly righteous life alone merited life. He didn't have to die. And so when he gave up his life, he did it completely freely and completely voluntarily. Maybe you remember what he said about his own life in John chapter 10 when he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You think about how calm and control and how unshakable Jesus was throughout his life. I mean, how calmly he withstood Satan's temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. How people throughout his life hated him and rejected him and were plotting his death all his life. And he was so collected and he was so unshakable and unafraid in those circumstances. How he was rejected by his own family and he took it all in stride. Right? You think about how calmly and coolly he confronted violent storms when he was awoken from a slumber, when his little sailor friends were terrified in the boat with him. Right? How with just a word he overthrew dark, hostile, evil, demonic forces, all so coolly and collected. How unafraid he was throughout his life to speak truth to power, how unafraid he was to be seen with all the wrong people, his friends, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the thieves. How collected he was when he was sharing his final meal and he knew his betrayer was dipping his hand in the same bowl as him. He knew that death awaited him in Jerusalem. And Luke says he set his face toward Jerusalem, undeterred, without blinking an eye. But there was a night in his life when the unshakable started shaking, and he was reeling, and he was overwhelmed. And it was the night before his crucifixion when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, that night, his torment was so intense that the Gospels tell us he was sweating drops of blood. And he himself said that his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. And you think, what in the world? What could have happened to shake the unshakable? And if you remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was asking his father 
if it were possible, to remove from him this cup. All throughout the Old Testament, the cup referred to God's just judgment on sin. See, staring into that cup, the unshakable staggered, and he was afraid. In the garden, he got a taste of what awaited him. The judgment we deserve was about to be poured out on him, and he shook. How horrific must a taste of that cup have been to shake the unshakable? I love this quote from Donald McLeod when he wrote, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified, terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. He took damnation voluntarily. And you see, he didn't just come to live the life you couldn't live. He also came to die the death you should have died, that I should have died. Let me ask you a simple question here. What could have bound the maker of all things before a Pilate, before a Herod? Chains? Rope? I mean, would they have been strong enough to bind the maker of all things? What could have shut the mouth of the one who sang all of creation into being? What could have held the creator and the sustainer of the universe to a rough wooden cross? Nails? Of course not. It was his love for you. His love held him there to drain the cup that we deserved. His love sent him to die the death that we should have died. What we deserve was revealed to him. He saw us to the very bottom of our souls, warped, twisted, self-centered, And he moved towards our shame, towards our brokenness with the kiss of his mercy and grace when he voluntarily gave his life for ours. We're so very desperate to be seen and loved. He saw us, and his love for you held him to that cross. Listen, to know that we are loved like that so completely, so perfectly and fully, it will set us free and it will transform us. So let's come to this last point here and talk about the benefits of this servant's life and death. And here I want to be, I I want to try to be very practical here, but let me briefly give you the big idea here, and then I'm going to give you four benefits or implications um, of this servant's life and death and how it's to be worked out in our lives. This servant came to voluntarily die the death we should have died. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.1 that because of Jesus' voluntary death for us, there is therefore now no condemnation, he wrote, for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the fear of being seen, the fear of being found out, the shame that haunts us, it is driving us at such deep and profound levels all the times. We're enslaved and we're hiding and we're insecure one moment, and then we're proud and arrogant the next moment as we overcompensate for our insecurity. Do you know, do you know what, what it means that there is now no condemnation for you? It's stronger than just saying that there isn't any condemnation. 
What he is saying is that the very possibility of condemnation doesn't even exist for you anymore if you are in Jesus, if you are resting in Him. It's not on the table. It's not up for discussion, he's saying. It's gone. He came, and He completely and entirely and fully drained the cup of judgment in your place. Now, that's real and true and deep freedom, if you can understand that. You have been set free. But this servant also came and lived the life you could not live. Same author, same letter. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.21, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness, the life of ultimate beauty, the finished and complete record of righteousness you know that you need in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to be approved of. You don't get it, Paul is saying, by trying harder or working more or being better. It's a gift, and it comes just by believing. It's Jesus' own righteousness given to you, a righteousness, Paul says, from God. Do you know what this really means? It means that if you believe in your most disappointing, most shame-filled, most, the most failing moment of your life, or of this past week, in that moment, when your father looks at you, he sees the righteous life of his son in your place. His ultimate beauty in your place. He looks at you and sees the one who withstood every temptation, who was unshakable in the face of rejection and betrayal. He looks at you and sees one who was never afraid to speak truth to power, who never compromised, who perfectly loved his broken neighbors, who perfectly submitted to his Father's will. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of the one who healed the blind and the lame and fed the 5,000. That's what he sees when he looks at you. Just think about the Father, his beaming smile over his son at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased, completely satisfied. If you are in Jesus, that smile, not diminished in one degree, not lessened in one degree or reduced in one degree, it belongs to you. The smile of the Father, it belongs to you even in your most shame-filled, disappointing, and failing moment of this past week or of your life. And if you can understand that and that becomes real to you, you will see that that is real and true and deep freedom. So what are the benefits? How do we take this and apply this to our lives? What are the benefits of this Christmas promise that Jesus came to live the life we could not live and die the death we should have died? I want you to think these over. I can only mention them briefly but you need to put meat on these bones as we think about, the, as we think about these things. First, first implication or benefit is you have to realize Jesus' identification. Those of us in this room who have been the victim of some kind of injustice, and we all have to some degree in a broken world, 
We rightly look for others who can identify with us, who can identify with the pain and with the sorrow and with the hurt and with the fear and the shame that we feel. Jesus, this passage is telling you, became the object of injustice for you, completely stripped naked and of his dignity on the cross, brutalized, spat on, mocked, beaten, torn, and killed. No one has ever been as alone as he was. Not a friend in the world by his side to defend him, completely forsaken by his Father on the cross. How desperately we want someone to understand and empathize with our pain and with our hurt in this life. He has identified with you. Go to him. Run into, your, into his arms. He identifies with you. He became an object of injustice for you. Second thing, learn to look outside of yourself. We live in a world and in a culture that says, look inside yourself. Look inside yourself to find your true beauty, your worth, your value. You have to look inside to know that you're lovable. Please don't. Um, You know this from experience. You could tell yourself a thousand times a day that you're beautiful, but one person comes up to you and says, you're ugly, and it's gone and forgotten. What you need is something far more objective in your life. You need something outside of yourself to tell you your value, your worth, your beauty, your, your lovability. I don't even know if that's a word. You need to learn to look to Jesus. Do you have worth? He left heaven's treasures to be born in a manger and come and die for you. Do you have beauty? He endured the cross before him because of the joy set before him. And you were that joy. You were his greatest delight. Are you lovable? Everything he did in his life, he did for you. The life he lived, he lived it for you. The death he died, he died for you. Learn to look outside of yourself. Third thing, live transparently. If you're really and completely known and completely loved, you're free. If the only one who truly matters in this life is beaming in love over you, you can stop pretending, and you can stop hiding and putting up walls. You're free to own your brokenness and put down the charade. You're free to stop being defensive. You're free free to hear criticism without it crushing you. See, here's the good news of the gospel. You're, you're far worse off than you know. <laughs> you're way more broken than you know. But you're also far more loved. You're far more accepted. You're far more delighted in than you ever dared dream possible. And so that frees you to live transparently. Fourth and finally, submit to Jesus. Okay? He staggered from just a taste of the cup that we deserve. And he submitted to his Father for you. He drained that cup in your place, his voluntary death for you. And you know what that means? 
It means you owe him everything. Not one part of his life did he hold back from you. He didn't tithe his blood for you. He gave it all. But we're constantly saying, mine, right? My time, my money, my body, my sex life, my relationships, you owe him everything. So let me end with this question. When is the last time you did something just because you love Jesus? When is the last time you stopped doing something just because you love Jesus? His love for you sent him to live for you the life you could not live. His love for you sent him to die the death you should have died. He submitted to his Father. Will you submit to him and take your hands off your life? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have yet again this week to be in your word. And Father, we pray that you would indeed give us time in this very season to meditate on this promised servant, to meditate on the life he came to live for us, to meditate on the death he came to die for us. And Father, we pray that you would plant this good news of the gospel deep in our hearts and that it would set us free, that it would set us free to submit to our King and our Savior, to live transparently, that it would set us free, Father, to own our brokenness, to come to Jesus, to run into the arms of the one who became the object of injustice for us and in our place. Father, set us free by this good news, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.